This is David Wilson and welcome to episode 57 of On Another Track. Welcome to On Another Track with me, David Wilson, exploring people and places from around the world. A podcast series that takes you where you've never been and probably where you never want to go. On Another Track is talking to people we can't meet with face to face. We use remote video technology and software to see what they have to say. Luckily, when, when I moved to Devizes all those years ago, I joined Hospital Radio there. They were looking for broadcasters. And it's funny, 2021, 2022, who would have thought I'd be doing this? Eh? There is a lot of similarities to England. There's a huge amount of expats here. We were at a barbecue a few weeks ago and there was 23 of us, and my husband was the only key in. That's the voice this week of my guest, Vicky Hudson-Craig. She's a qualified solicitor in England and about to be the same in New Zealand. On the track has a propensity to connect people from all around the world. Vicky reached out to me through LinkedIn. I thought it was going to be just a straightforward interview with a solicitor from England. But no, I found out when I dug deeper, Vicky has a very rare condition to do with melanoma and the infection around her heart. What's even more shocking is if Vicky does not get a heart transplant, then her life could be very, very short. Listen as she takes us on the journey of her becoming a solicitor, her connections with the England rugby team and also the All Blacks. She's an amazing lady who's not afraid to tackle the biggest challenge of her life head on. I started by asking Vicky to paint a picture of where she lives. I'm in Christchurch, New Zealand, right actually in the suburb of Sumner, which is right on the coast. And do you have a view of the coast from your window? No, but I can hear the sea right now because it's just at the end of our garden. <laughs> I, I think we're going to end the interview right now. You put me right off. <laughs> I'm so jealous. Well, no, that's wonderful. And and so what intrigued you? I've got to ask this first of all. What, what made you want to go to New Zealand? Uh, I came out here on holiday and loved it. It was at a time in my life where I wasn't wasn't happy I had a melanoma diagnosed a couple of years before and just decided that um I wanted a bit of a change and so I came out here on holiday and by the end of the holiday I had a job lined up and was applying for a visa that's an incredible story. Much to my mother's disgust. Well, no, but, you know, mum and dad's, guess what? They don't lead your life. I mean, you have to lead your own <laughs> life and you have to apply that furrow. But I know it's tinged with a little bit of, um, you know, health issues. I mean, really, tell us about those first of all. Let's get that out of the way. Because when you revealed that to me, I said, you know, I really want to interview Vicky because you must have gone through so much over the years trying to deal with the health issues. How did you first find out that there was something wrong? What were the first indicators? So I had melanoma back in 2013 and it was a mole on my shoulder. So this is a really good advert for getting moles checked. But I had a mole on my shoulder and I went to a doctor several times and said, I don't think it's right. Can you take it off? And he said, no, I think it's fine. You'll have more problems with the scar than you will from the mole. And anyway, so I left it and then... In 2013, I was sat in a pub with my sister and she said, uh, your back's bleeding. Oh, my. And, um, yeah, so I went to another doctor who said, I don't want to alarm you, but you're going to a hospital now. Wow. So it was that that quick. Yeah. So I had two operations to remove that one. And then 
they said, we think we've got it, but we can't guarantee it hasn't got into your blood. And um, melanoma is not detectable in blood. So we won't know unless it goes somewhere else. And then in 2020, then I was in New Zealand. So I went into hospital with appendicitis, complete unrelated. And they scanned my appendix just to check that's what it was. And the radiographer happened to look at my heart and said, well, her appendix are fine, but what's that? And found four tumours on my heart. Um, so um, they're still there. <laughs> they're growing. And so they've diagnosed it as probably being melanoma spread into the heart, which is very rare. No one's ever seen it before like this. Um, so I had nine months of immunotherapy. And then in December, we found out that another tumour had grown. Um, so I've now got five. It's, you know, it's always so hard to understand this because, you know, we constantly get told to protect our our skin. You know, we get told to, you know, wear the right, you know, suntan lotion, things like that. And like you say, you are a complete advert for really looking after your skin, the moles and things like that. And you, you had the forethought to go ahead and get them checked on more than once. So you mm. must leave you a little bit, I would say, bitter inside. You know, you must be kind of angry about it in a way, or have you converted that? No, I'm, no, I'm not bitter. I mean, I think that what it did was lead me to make choices in my life that I probably wouldn't have made otherwise. And I've ended up here and I've got my husband and a beautiful daughter. And so without that happening, I probably wouldn't have that. So. No, I, I'm not bitter. I'm quite sad. <laughs> well, no, I, I understand that. And I, I feel that, you know, I can I can tell it in the way that you're, you know, you approached it and you were very honest about it. And I can hear it in your voice. But you know what's really interesting? That was fantastic how you just converted a really difficult situation for most people. You then put that energy into saying, I'm going to do something in my life. You know, this is, this is, you know, I don't know how long I've got, but guess what? I'm going to go for it. And hope to goodness you have got a long time. You know, I hope to goodness that all the therapies will work. So from your point of view, are you just, do you just take one day at a time now and you just approach it very pragmatically? Is that how you've approached your life? Yeah, definitely a day at a time. Because um, if I, Gary rode at the moment, because the first treatment hasn't worked and the second one, we don't know yet. I'm only just two, well, I started it in January and so far I haven't been able to actually manage to stay on the drugs for very long because I keep reacting to them. So we don't, I don't know what the prognosis is. No, and no one knows. My cure is for a heart transplant, but we don't know if that's going to be allowed or not yet. Well, you know, you've got to look at all options. So Let's, definitely a day at a time. <laughs> yeah, well, but the point being is you've got to look at all options. You've got to be positive. And it's very difficult when you can't be positive. But I get the feeling from you that you are a little bit of a kind of, I'm just going to do it. You know, I'm going to get on with it. I'm determined. And I love that about you. I think I've only met you now, but I'm, it's overwhelming, you know. <laughs> Okay, let's 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 convert that now and let's let's talk about your life because you've had actually a very interesting life. So let's start with your professional life first of all, because I'm dying to ask you about your personal life and family life, but I'm gonna leave that for later on the show. So let's move that to one side. But you actually qualified as a solicitor or as I suppose what they call them in North America, a lawyer, effectively. Uh, it's the same kind of thing, is it? Or is it different? Because is the terminology different? Yeah, slightly different. So I don't know too much about North America, but 
in New Zealand, you qualify as a barrister and a solicitor, so you're a lawyer. And I think the same is true in Canada. But um, in England, you are a solicitor or a barrister. So there's a slight differentiation. But in England, I would never have gone to court in the in the area that I did. And, and I've got to ask the, the really obvious question. You kind of Simon explained it there. I always wondered what the difference was between a, a solicitor, lawyer, and a barrister. The bottom line is, I think you said one of them was, one of them can go to court, but I've, I've seen lawyers go to court. Yeah, so a solicitor can uh, go to certain courts, and but the higher courts would be usually barristers, lawyers, and solicitors tend to be the instructing person. So they do the sort of the base work and then the barrister would do the hearing. And can you go in and qualify as a barrister straight away, or is it like many, many um, different sort of, you know, careers, I suppose, that you have to go through this sort of hierarchy and work up through? What's the process? As a solicitor or a barrister? Well, I think, first of all, if somebody was going to embark on the journey of being a solicitor, for instance, in England and Wales, because that's where you're from, yeah. from Gloucestershire, um, what's the thing that you have to be thinking about when you're even at school, say high school or secondary school, and you're going to leave and you're going to go and do your A-levels? How did you progress through it? And what was that kind of path? What did it look like? Well, I wanted to be a marine biologist. (laughs) No way. Seriously. (laughs) So so my A-levels were biology, maths and chemistry. And then I threw in English because I liked reading. (laughs) That's incredible. And then one of my guidance careers teacher said that they didn't think that was the right career for me because it would just involve bobbing up and down on a boat in the middle of nowhere and I wasn't going to get to work with dolphins or anything, you know, glamorous. Um, So then I sort of looked at what degrees I could do that could lead sort of anywhere because a law degree is quite useful for a number of careers. You don't have to be a solicitor or a barrister. Having got a law degree, you could go into banking or anything really because it's a good academic degree. So I started talking about doing law and then I was offered an after school job in a local law firm, answering the phone basically two hours a day after school. So I took that largely because my dad didn't want me working for him anymore. (laughs) And we'll talk about dad's company in a minute. Yeah, it's a bit argumentative. So I took that job and then started learning to type. So in the holidays, I'd go in and type for them and earn quite good money at that age I was only 16 17 I did everything I went from cleaning the cellar to filing papers to typing and then I sort of taught myself or as I was going through I learned the process of conveyancing and property so in the holidays I would cover for people when they were on holidays like and so this carried on through uni as well and then I went to work for them when I finished uni so I kind of started right at the bottom Best place to be, though. It's a very interesting place to be because I do have a kind of paint a picture for people that are listening from around the world. Our type of business, because I've been involved in conveyancing as we were talking earlier on of doing the surveying and doing the plans, a lot of surveyors and solicitors and conveyancing offices, it's very parochial, isn't it? It tends to be kind of very around the marketplace in each of the individual towns. And it tends to be an an organic, um, you know, growth to the business until probably the 80s and 90s when a lot of them got bought out by, you know, the big banks and what have you. So when you first started in it, you know, you learn all the different parts of the trade, which was wonderful. Great grounding, wasn't it? Yeah. And I'd say for anyone that wants to get into law, that's a really good basis because it really made my life. Um, my academic life so much easier because I understood it 
right from the from the bottom when you get into doing exams and the practice things you actually you know how it relates in practice so things that can seem quite confusing on paper when you're actually in a firm they're just logical like they just work and you understand them far better so you did your apprenticeship as i would call it or your uh, do you still do articles i think is that that's training yeah training contract yeah yeah so so basically just explain that again if somebody's thinking of being a, a, a solicitor you go and get your qualification at college or, or university, so to, so to speak. You get your law degree. What's the logical sequence? So you do a degree and then you do a year's course and it's called either the legal practice course or the bar vocational course. So depending on whether you want to be a solicitor or a barrister, you do one or the other. And then once you've completed that, you go on and do a training contract for two years um, and then you're qualified. And so once you qualified, what did it feel like? I mean, did you think, oh, the world's my oyster? I can go anywhere now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember sitting actually in a pub in at home with my then boss and thinking, oh, my God, my world just got huge in the log Gloucester. <laughs> but the thing about it is, did you, were you were you inclined to move at that stage or did you just decide, okay, we'll just see what comes up? Is that what, How did your career progression go? I remember when... Um, when I qualified, or when I finished uni, they said um, that they would take me on. And I said that I wanted to work for a year and then I wanted to go and do six months sailing and six months skiing. Why not? Um, and then I never did it. Um, and so, <laughs> because, because the day I qualified, my boss took me to the Mercedes garage and said, look what you can buy now. Holy and I fell into the <laughs> And the trouble is, though, when you're young, you know, and you're just qualified in your early 20s, that, that does that does swing the lead a little bit, doesn't it? That does influence you. Oh, There's yeah. no doubt about it, isn't it? <laughs> I did the same thing. I remember going home with this um, brand new Mercedes sports car, or brand new for me. It wasn't brand, brand new. But um, and my dad said, that's great, but where are you going to live? <laughs> yeah, you hadn't really kind of thought about that, had you? So how did life progress after that? You got your Mercedes. I've got my Mercedes Benz. And... What happened then? What 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 was the last of the story? Well, well, I just worked, I worked and worked and worked, and um, I became a partner, and then um, then I got sort of a bit itchy feet, and um, went from being a partner down to um, an associate, a much bigger firm. So I was a partner in a high street firm, and then I went to an associate at a big um, Bristol, London firm which was huge. I went from like, I think there was about a hundred of us then to 700. Wow. Um, which I loved. I loved that firm, but um, that's when I got the melanoma. Okay. I've just got to ask you this because, you know, you see all these amazing TV shows about your know, lawyers in America. and Life is not like that. <laughs> no, no, no. But here's the thing, right? I haven't been on the periphery of it, you know, on the surveying side and doing the conveyancing and, going to disputes for land disputes and boundary disputes, which comes down to, as you know, millimetres sometimes, you know, it can get very heated. Um, what, what is the difference if somebody was looking to go into law um, between working for what I would call a high street firm that like you were working for and then going corporate? What, what are the major differences and what should you be aware of before kind of, you know, launching yourself into either one? Very long working day at corporates. <laughs> yeah. It depends what you want. Some people absolutely love that. They love being there all hours and, you know, the last one to put the lights out is the, the best, you know, um, and they love that that buzz of of the deals. And, and you may, I mean, the facilities and the, the things that you get 
provider with and the office and you know it's, it, and the people you meet are incredible like you do some amazing transactions and um well I was in property so I only have experience of that really but um you know those big corporates whereas the high street I guess you've got you still you work incredibly hard and you do do a lot of hours but not quite on the same league as the um the corporates can be okay I got a I got loads of questions you know, you get an impression from what's on TV and things like that. And, you know, and you think, oh, okay, that's probably not really what it's like. It's pretty, a lot of it's drudgery, isn't it? A lot of it's repetitive work, you know, and any type of things like that. It, even in surveying when I was in it, you know, doing a conveyance plan from one yeah. conveyance plan to another, as long as it scaled one to 2,500, it had a scale and a north point on it, you know, you were good to go sort of thing. You know, it was quite repetitive. Yeah. Um, but what I was going to ask for two things. Um, okay. They, do they make big bucks? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because the thing is, why would you? Not in New, not so much in New Zealand, but no, yeah, no, in England. Yeah, because you New can. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so that's really what's driving young people to go into the business. Is obviously they don't mind putting the hours in. They got the energy, but they know the rewards, the Mercedes, you know, the the, the expense account, the salary. It's really quite exceptional isn't it it can be depending on where you work in the bigger corporate companies yeah, it can be especially the, the obviously you, your health issues occurred um did you get the support that you expected though from your company yeah yeah no they were really good yeah because i went because i was actually in the process of changing job when i got the diagnosis and they were really good and they were absolutely lovely firm and it was very you know there was a lot of support but at that time it was kind of like I had melanoma, it got removed. I had checks every three months, but it was done and dusted. Like it wasn't like an ongoing cancer where you're needing emotional support and constant appointments and constant treatments. And like now, you know, it's completely different then. Yeah. And, and no, I, I totally understand that. You know, you, you have to cross each bridge as you come to it now, I suppose. That's the, the thing about it. Tell us how supportive your New Zealand employer has been. Um, so they've been really good. And, um, you know, my hospital admissions have gone up and my um, needing appointments, you know, it's, there's scans every three months, there's a point, follow-up appointments, there's results, there's side effects, there's illness. And, um, I mean, that's that's hard for an employer to juggle, especially when you have no control over it and you don't know when these things are going to arise. So they have been very very supportive but i think it goes back to trust as well that they'll they know that you're doing what i'm i'm doing what i can to you know alleviate those pressures for both of us because it's stressful for the employee knowing that you know they're taking time out they don't feel well they're under pressure to work you know it's 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 not a nice situation so for an employer to sort of sit back or allow me to deal with all of that without added pressure is is um has been really good i think that that's something that employers are coming more around to with the more working from home and covid that they are having to trust people irrespective of whether they're ill or not <laughs> um to get the job done yeah no you're you're absolutely correct i think um what they've noticed actually i think it was it norway or sweden have gone to a four-day week for a lot of their kind of industry and the way they think about it is that 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 they because they've been working from home, the efficiencies have gone up because people don't have to travel to work. They, people are putting in more hours, so they saw it as a fair trade-off to give people an extra day's weekend holiday, you know, or whatever, you know, a, a three-day weekend. Yeah. And what they found is is the 
the level of satisfaction, job satisfaction has gone through the roof and the, the, the stress levels have gone right down because people can really balance their life up between a four and a three day week, which is wonderful. I mean, but they're still getting as much done, if not more done. And it, it's bizarre, isn't it? But it just shows you happy, yeah. happy employees are efficient employees, I suppose. They are. And I think that mutual trust, you know, it's it's a lot for an employer to, you know, traditionally, unless you were sat at your desk nine till five, you weren't doing your job. But actually, it's a big mind shift for employers to know that they have to trust the employee to do the work. And and they and like you said, they do. I, I mean, I for example, I find that, you know, when I work from home, there's an hour of my day traveling that's on work straight away. I have to admit that I don't always get into office gear, so there's no getting ready. That's fine, you know, it's great. <laughs> so there's another half an hour. <laughs> so you do save time and you are more efficient, but I find that then you're more willing to give back as well. You know, you're more flexible when a call comes in maybe out of hours that you're quite happy to take because you know that you've had time during the day when you've needed to do something that you can shoot off and do it or... Um, you know the matter of and I think it'd be fair to say we should should mention your employer if you're okay with that to just give them a little plug because I mean that's fantastic that they support you in this way. So tell us tell us all about them very briefly. It's Tom Everton and Co Limited. We're a law firm, um, just a smaller law firm, but we do sort of a general range of of legal work. We do a lot of property, a lot of development work, resource management, estates, private client, quite a commercial. Um, work so quite a broad brush but yet we do try to really stick to the flexible and we've sort of gone right away from the traditional model of the law firm everyone's very self-sufficient and um, sort of fully cloud-based and that sort of thing it's transformed companies it really has I mean it's transformed what I do even with the sort of podcasting I mean Years ago, I would never have been able to do this without a special link to you in New Zealand. And now we do it via Zoom, you know, which is just blows yeah. me away. It's fantastic. Um, one of the other things I wanted to just uh, make sure that we've got absolutely correct. You, you have a website for raising some money. Yeah. Which will help you in your treatment and what have you. And as you explained earlier on, it's it's almost essential, isn't it, when you're outside of the UK? Because we get very cushioned in the UK with the national health system. And we're very lucky. We have a very good system. And I know people yeah. always complain about it. But you know what? It doesn't matter who you are. If you drop down in the street, you will get seen to, and it doesn't cost you a penny. That's the thing. That's Although right. as, as employees, yeah. it does. I mean, we pay our national insurance. Yeah. Now. But when we move to other places, like obviously I'm in Canada, you're in New Zealand, mm. there's a kind of hybrid system that goes on, isn't there? There's one where you do have yeah. – a lot of it's modeled on the national health system, but there's only very limited things that you can do. And clearly with the type of drugs that you have to do for your treatment – you have to raise money somehow, don't you? Yeah, that's right. They're not funded here, this particular drug. So, um, yeah, that's um, you either go with that or um, you self-fund or you move back to the UK. <laughs> well, well, that's the thing. And, you know, it's it's almost like, you know, if you are ill, you, you almost do want to go back to the UK because if it starts to go tens of thousands of dollars or pounds or whatever it is, it can be very draining on your kind of, you know, your resources. I mean, you run out of money, basically. That's impossible. Yeah. 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 And, and no, I, I totally understand that. You know, you have to cross each bridge as you come to it now, I suppose. That's the, the thing about it. But here's the thing. I wanted to just say, okay, now, you you, you obviously got itchy feet because I can, can tell you were sort of looking for the next five-year plan, maybe. This is the, the impression I get. And, of course, when you have the melanoma, that really then opened your horizons to say, 
let's go and maybe look abroad. Now, what, what did you just look at New Zealand or did you look around the world to see what you could do? No, just, just New Zealand. Um, because I knew a couple of people here um, and it felt comfortable. Like my sister's always wanted to live in Australia, absolutely loves it. And I've been to Australia and it is lovely, but there's no part of me that wanted to live there. It's too many things that kill you for a start. Oh, that's right. They all they crawl around and go under toilet seats and things like that, don't they? <laughs> yeah. Um, and I've been to America quite a few times. Um, but yeah, I just, I really loved it when I came here on holiday and um, just the way of life and the fact that you could live right next to the beach. I know. It's just wonderful. wonderful. Affordably. <laughs> We're 90 minutes from the mountains to ski. And so, yeah, the, the quality, the life, work-life balance is more even here. No, and it makes sense because the, you know, when you actually look at, because I considered, like I say, New Zealand before I came to Canada and I got the impression it was still very rural. It was still very much farm-based. Some parts. Some parts, yeah. And the, the, the cities are very sophisticated, very well-developed in their service industries as well in New Zealand. And, you know, so there's, you've got the best of both worlds, but you do find that actually there is that space for personal time. It, they, they do have that still culturally in New Zealand yeah yeah they do yeah it's much there is a much better work-life balance there's a lot of move towards flexible working and but I'm working from home right now I've found it much better in that sense so and how did you decide where you were going to live I, as I said when I was on that holiday I had a job interview so the job kind of dictated where I lived really and then because of again going back to the melanoma my visa application process was really complicated because they do not let you in with any medical problems. <laughs> Same in Canada. So I had a bit of a, uh, a slow process with that, but I wanted to move away from the city life. You know, I, I haven't, I still haven't actually been to Auckland, which is shocking. But wow, gosh. And how long have you lived in New Zealand for? Six and a half years. <laughs> That's incredible. I've been to Sydney, but I haven't been to Auckland. That's so funny. I haven't had that um, draw to the city. And, and obviously when I moved here, Christchurch was still, well, still is being very much redeveloped after the earthquakes. Yeah. So when I moved here, there was a lot of construction going on. And it's a way more of a city now than it was even six years ago. Incredible. I, I want to ask you the other question before I forget it, is that practicing law or being a solicitor in the UK or in especially England and Wales, how different is it the way it's practiced in New Zealand? Or is it similar? Not very. Yeah, quite similar. It's based on the same legal system when the settlers came all that time ago. But the Westminster legal system kind of came with them. So a lot of the law is very similar the processes are different but the base law is quite similar and then as i said you here you are a barrister and solicitor that's the qualification interesting which i'm trying to get yeah and, <laughs> and fingers crossed have you got another year or something on the other six months to sort of uh, i've got three more exams to do which i'm trying to do this year oh good for you good for you go for it <laughs> go for it yeah it's it's interesting because again when you come here to canada very similar kind of system in terms of the parliamentary system and uh, originally based on, you know, everything from London. Uh, but the conveyancing and the way that they make offers on properties is so different. Because uh, in the UK, you have that offer period mm. and then, you, you know, you go to exchange a contract before you complete. Yeah. It's round the other way here. You make the offer and within seven days, you exchange those contracts, you're committed. Well, here actually, so you, you've got a kind of middle. So this is where the, the process is slightly different is you make an offer 
which is conditional. And then you have to fulfill those conditions within, say, 10 working days. And then once you're unconditional, once you've confirmed those conditions, then it, it's yours. But until you've reached that expiry, the vendor can't withdraw. So you can't get gazumped. Yeah, that happened a lot in the UK. Um, unless you don't fulfill. Yeah, and, and just to explain to other listeners from around the world, gazumping in the UK was a big problem. You know, when we had the booms and what have you, you know, you go in, you make an offer, and then somebody else would make a counter offer. You didn't know about it. They end up getting the property, and you were left high and dry. And it was it was a bit of a nightmare, actually, until it changed your contracts, you know. When um, they had the 0% deposits, when Northern Rock were doing 100% mortgages, you'd have people pulling out on the day that they were moving. You're halfway through listening to On Another Track with me, David Wilson. My guest this week is Vicky Hudson-Craig. Next, I wanted to ask Vicky more about her family and specifically about the people that played for the England rugby team and also the connection to the All Blacks. Uh, I come from Gloucester, which is a big rugby town, and um, I'm one of the Hudsons who were big rugby players. Fair enough. <laughs> um, so my great-granddad played for England against the original All Blacks tour. So the New Zealand connection went way back to 1905 in England. So my great-granddad and, and all, one of the All Blacks actually set up a sports shop and he stayed in England, the All Blacks stayed in England, and they ran this, the shop. And then it got handed to my granddad, who also played for England, and then passed for my dad, who didn't. <laughs> no, fair enough. I mean, yeah, because I just watched a video of your dad saying, you know, the reason why they were closing the shop, uh, which is not that not that long ago, was it? It was around... Last year, two years ago, just before COVID. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, timing-wise, probably, you know, he was lucky in a way just, oh, just to... Just, that sack it there and then sort of thing, you know. So I think business decision wise, he did it okay. But it was, it was a bit to see that history because there was 111 years of history. That was what blew me away. You know, that pedigree that you had, the All Blacks connection, you know, and the fact that your grandfather, you know, he played or great grandfather actually, isn't it? Great grandfather yeah, played for yeah. England and grandfather, I think, played for England. So, yeah, they both did. Yeah. You know, so you, you come from a great line of people here, you know, that's the thing. So how did it affect you growing up and what have you? Because he did allude to it slightly that you probably had to work in the shop. That was the de-rigger on a Saturday and a Friday night and a Thursday night, late night shopping and all that. Yeah. How much, how much influence did it have on your life growing up? Oh, a huge amount. I mean, everyone knew who, or everyone loved my dad um, at school. Like he used to help out on a lot of school trips and stuff. And all the all the boys particularly wanted to be in his group. And everyone knew, yeah, everyone knew who I was. But it did mean that you couldn't get away with anything because everyone knew who you were. <laughs> and, and just to put this into perspective, okay, you know, Hudson's was the hub really of a lot of the sports, um, you know, purchases in Gloucester. You know, people would probably have come from. Rural areas around, you'll always get it in Hudson's. I mean, it was well known for that, wasn't it? Yeah, all over the country, and particularly because it was so tied in with rugby. And then they actually went on to open um, and branch within Gloucester Rugby, doing Gloucester's merchandise. So it became even more linked back to the the rugby again. So yeah, it was definitely um, well known everywhere. So here's the other thing: it doesn't just stop there, right? Now here's what I found out. Got to get this right. Your dad's dad is Gordon. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. And his sister is pretty famous as well. Gwen. Yeah. 
So yes. tell us all about Gwen. Gwen played at Wimbledon. <laughs> and when was that? Do you remember? I've got the date uh, here, actually. I'm probably... 50s? Yeah, 1951. She, she, she played the defending champion at Wimbledon. She did. And I mean, centre court. Yeah, and bless her. her so she had a young, a young son. And he was really ill the night before. So she was up all night nursing her young son and then turned up on centre court the next day to play against the reigning champion. You know what? They were made of sterner stuff then. They were. She was pretty hard, Kate. She was. As we would say, they were made of steel, weren't they? They were, Well, they just came through the Second World War, for crying out loud, you know, being bombed, you know, and all that sort of thing. But that was that was incredible. I thought yeah. when, when I did that research, I thought that was amazing. Now, what's life like now for Dad? I mean, he's obviously retired. What's he doing to keep himself occupied? Oh, he doesn't stop. Um, well, he they spent eight months here last year with me when I was diagnosed. So they were they had eight months in New Zealand. But he does gardening. He does walking rugby. He does tennis. He does coffee mornings. Mum tries to keep home sometimes. <laughs> DIY. Um, yeah, he just doesn't stop. It's incredible that we were able to spend eight months with you. And and family-wise, you're married to somebody very close to my heart in many ways. The surname is Craig. Your husband's surname is Craig. Uh, yeah, Ryan Craig. And my mother's maiden name is Craig. And I know, I'm almost guaranteed, we spoke before the broadcast, that we definitely have some links back to Ireland. There must be some links there. Yeah, we definitely. Yeah, I was going to say, I sent you the Ancestry Tree or Ancestry.com link and do your research and then tell me in another podcast. We might actually be able to do some history sort of searching <laughs> on that. Um, okay, so let's let's bring kind of everything up to date. You've now got yourself, uh, you've got three more exams to do your law qualifications there in New Zealand. And, um, you know, fingers crossed, I'm sure you're going to pass them. You seem very determined and, uh, you know, wish you the best of luck with them. But what I wanted to say is, you know, what would be the biggest export do you think from New Zealand for people potentially looking to live there you did allude to you know the the sea views and be able to be in a more rural location pace of life is different but is there anything else that you think that really would sell New Zealand to the world uh oh there's so much <laughs> um well I, yeah I mean I love the fact that it's you've got this you know the you've got literally the beach and the mountains that you can do in one day the definite but um nicer pace of life um it's beautiful it's absolutely beautiful and we're right down in the bottom of the world not anywhere near very many people <laughs> which is great isn't it you're not bothered by all these wars going on in europe and, yeah. and people doing silly things in north america at the moment it's just crazy at the moment but um but the isolation is one thing in a way you know it, it does mean that it, it's expensive isn't it i mean in terms of trying to get there and yeah. flights must be what in excess of what 24 hours by the time you change in i don't know singapore and brisbane or I don't know, Sydney yeah. or wherever it is. 20, yeah, 26 hours is the quickest, yeah. Almost reminds me of being a kid when we went to Hong Kong. I mean, that was like 24, 26 hours as well, way back then, but uh, there we are. It can feel quite isolated. It, it can, but if you're good with isolation in your own company, then it's not a bad thing. You know, that's that's the, that's the way <laughs> I look at it. So I didn't ask you about family as well. Do you have a, a son or a couple of kids or what, how, many, how many? I have one daughter, okay. Ruby. Oh, She's Ruby, what a great. Four. Oh, I love it, I love it. So she keeps you busy, doesn't she? Oh, she sits, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's got amazing negotiation skills. Well, I wonder where she gets that from. I just can't quite think, <laughs> you know. And she's got that lovely New Zealand accent, I bet. She has, yeah, yeah. Again, again, 
I love that. The trouble is that now here, here's a really obvious question: How can you tell the difference between an Aussie and a Kiwi? What's the major things? Because some people, I, I know you're grievous there, but you see in North America here, I, I kind of I can't always tell the difference between a North American, you know, like on the Montana Canadian border, and then say a Southern Albertan, which is literally they're, they're like a stone's throw away. The accents are so similar. Yeah. But did anybody give you kind of a, a little bit of a hint to say, you must make sure you don't call them an Aussie or don't call them a Kiwi if they're one or the other? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, they don't like being called each other. Um, I can hear the difference. I couldn't explain it to you very well, um, but I can hear the difference. The The Aussie accent sounds a, a wee bit harsher. The, the Kiwi is a bit softer. Some of the tones, are sort of the pronunciations are similar, but yeah, the Kiwi accents are a wee bit softer. And they say we a lot, a wee bit softer. Kiwis say that a lot. Well, of course, it's the <laughs> Irish, uh, Scottish sort of background there, isn't it? That's where it all comes from. Okay, so let's take you out your work situation. Let's put worries about health aside. What do you like to do in your spare time? What is the something that really feeds your soul, Vicky's soul? What is something you're passionate about? Oh, everything. <laughs> Anything that's outdoors. Um, we spend a lot of time at the beach in the summer, sort of outdoors and doing yeah beach time or we've just just got a kayak for ruby and some of our friends have got boats and i love going boating and then in winter i love skiing oh so you've got a, you've got everything on your doorstep haven't you yeah yeah because um new zealand like new zealand is quite expensive to live so the more you can do outdoors that doesn't cost the better <laughs> Well, it's the same here, actually, in certain parts of Canada. You know, it's um, maybe not as expensive as New Zealand or even the UK, um, but, you know, you have a lot of things that you can do outside. There's no doubt about it. If you like skiing, you're going to love six, seven months of snow. You know, that's fantastic. Uh, but you've got to be able to afford to do it. That's the thing. You know, that's that's the difference. You yeah. know? Um, so from your point of view, what would you like the future to look like? Long. <laughs> um, but... Uh... I really, um, yeah, just, I just want to spend as much time with Ruby. I, obviously I want to re-qualify and, and do that side of things, but yeah, just explore as much of New Zealand with Ruby and Ryan. Um, hopefully maybe get back to the UK at some point to see family and stuff. Cause I haven't been back yet since I moved here. Um, and, um, yeah, I'd like to be healthy. Well, I, I think you're very determined. I, I can just feel that. I think you've got a very positive attitude because you, you have to have one. You've got to be, you know, looking forward all the time. And I think I can see that from you. And I think if anybody is going to really have a good chance of beating this, I think you are based on what I see in front of me, which is wonderful. You know, I mean, the determination is there. And I know it's difficult because, you know, you're going to have somebody behind you as well. And you've got obviously a great partner who's really supportive. And you've got a, yeah, that's right. And you've got a little Ruby. The, um, yeah, Ruby keeps it. Yeah, <laughs> you can't think about yourself when you've got all your running around. Well, that's very that's very true, though. I mean, you know, I think it does keep people going in the toughest of times, doesn't it? You know, you kind of you do feel like giving up sometimes. That's normal. That's human, right? But when you see those little ones, you think, okay, I'm here for that reason. I'm going to look after them. You know, we um. We're having to self-fund my um, drugs because they're not funded here. So that's another not-so-positive side <laughs> of um, not having an NHS. 
what you're saying is for treatment purposes, you have to self-fund. That that's some of the drugs are not available are based on the national health yeah. system of, of yeah. New Zealand. Yeah, so my last ones were funded, but these ones aren't. So they're very expensive. So my friends set up um just giving pages to help me, which going with that was that the amount of people I've met in New Zealand are just they've just been so lovely and so supportive of us as a family. Um and these are people I didn't know, you know, more than six years ago. And um yeah, so they set up a just giving page so that we could do it because um otherwise we wouldn't wouldn't be able to. So, okay, let's get a promotion out there for the page. So let us know what the website is. How can we help you by funding you? What's the name of the page? It's givealittle.co.nz and it's hearts-for-vicky, which is spelled V-I-C-K-I-E. And that's my page to stay alive. Well, no, great. No, it's important. I mean, this is this is the whole point of the podcast. I want you to stay alive. I want you to be able to yes. raise lots of money because that's really important. So I have a lot to do. You do. You do. And it's fantastic. And I love the way that you come across on the interview. You're just so open and so honest about things. And I love it. And uh, it's so nice to have an interview that, that does that because that's what makes a really interesting program. Yeah. <laughs> and you, you're going to send me the link, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because that's, that's going to go on the web page. Well, it's going to go on the web page, and when we post this on LinkedIn, everybody's going to know about that. Okay. <laughs> and let's get it around the world because I think this is so important. You have a zest for life that is just worth capturing, and I think it's so important to help you in your time of need. And it's lovely to hear how the New Zealand people have come together. And you know what? I don't know about you, working from home and seeing what everybody's been going through in the last two years, and now just seeing what's happening in the Ukraine. It's amazing the humility of people, isn't it? How people can come from all walks of life. Yeah, I mean, they, um, right from the day that I moved here, before any of this happened, the people that just, you know, I was on my own when I came here and they just pulled me in and I became part of their families. And, you know, I have such, such lovely friends and I spent Christmases with them and their grandmothers were saying to me, you know, and call me Nan and you know like the, just the Kiwi people are so so welcoming like I've never um I would never have imagined just how they just took me in just no questions asked you know it's just you're one of us come on let's go there you are and, you're one uh, of them you've got to go haven't you yeah. you have no option you've got to go for a drink at least you know come on yeah, well, and that's what I learned when moving away as well. That pe- you know, if people invite you to something, you go. Like, oh, most definitely. Because, yeah, you've got to join in, you've got to meet people, and that's how you do it. And so, yeah, I really, um, I was really looked after. It's actually so the same when I came to Canada, very similar stories. You know, people would take you in and, I remember arriving, we were sort of a week before Christmas, we had no presents. And, you know, the Canadians across the road were living in rented accommodation. And they came across on Christmas Day with a couple of presents for the three kids. And I thought, you know, that's just nice. It just really touches the heart. Just those little things. Totally. Like one of our neighbours here, she, um, every Monday, because she said, what do you miss about home the most? And I said, oh, you know, when you just, get home and your mum cooks you dinner sometimes it just brings you a lasagna round or something so now every monday she puts our dinner on the doorstep god bless her that is wonderful isn't it's just it? amazing eh? yeah just 
it's like it's like the it's like the old country in some ways from 40 years ago 50 years ago you know where people helped each other because yeah. they didn't have much anyway do you know what i mean that was the point they shared what yeah. they have you know yeah well there's they're heartwarming stories so yes uh definitely send me the link and we'll definitely get that on the page and we'll make sure we get it on linkedin facebook everything and we'll just see what we can do to help you i can't promise anything but you know what if we get it around the world <laughs> you just never know it's, it's, it's doing really well like um it's we've got uh it's about seven months covered at the moment. Fantastic. Well, I'm so pleased to hear that. So I, I have got one more question, and, and this is very personal, I think, in your situation. And you've probably heard it on the other podcast. Roll the clock back. If you're 18 again, what would you tell yourself now? Your mum knows best. <laughs> I love that. And she was always right. She was always right. <laughs> Now, wait a minute, you're going to clarify that, but you can't get away with just a general statement like that. Now, being a lawyer and a solicitor, we're going to dive in a bit deeper and dig a bit under this sort of hard surface. What do you mean by that? Specifically, why do you think that's right? My mum, she's really good at advice, actually. And, you know, when you're young and you think that you always know best and, yeah, you know, like I remember when I moved here, I said, oh, I'm only, uh, I'm going to go for two, you know, two and a half years. And she's like, you're going to meet someone and have a child and you'll never come back. I was like, no, 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 you're wrong. I don't want that. That's not what I want. Here I am. <laughs> yeah, you forget they were young once as well. They had desires. They had, to, you know, hopes and dreams and everything. So that's a great, great advice. I'm pretty sure that she, yeah, I'm pretty sure that she told me yeah, a few other things when I was younger um, that I didn't listen to. Well, and I mean, that's on the personal side. What about on the work side and career side? Would there be anything you would sort of say to somebody, you know, if you saw your 18-year-old self again, say on a bus, and you had this conversation, then what would you recommend to them about career, for instance? Um, the material things don't matter. and um, But just, I think, follow... Um, follow your gut on what feels right um, career-wise. Like, it's a hard thing to move jobs and it's a really hard thing to move countries and jobs. But if you feel that it's right for you, then do it because it's the best, yeah, the best thing to do. If, you, if that's what you want to do and you want to change, just follow your gut. Here, here. And I've done the same thing as you. I've moved countries and moved jobs at the same time. It's the toughest thing, but it opens up a lot of opportunities, doesn't it? It does. It does. And it also, I think, makes you live without regret. You know, you can you can say, well, okay, some things didn't work. Like I did a year in uh, recruitment and it didn't work. I didn't like it. I tried. I don't regret it. And then I went back to law. Yeah, you just yeah, follow your gut. <laughs> but it's fulfilling. Well, I'm so pleased that we met, right? And it was actually through a mutual friend or somebody. I interviewed Alex Draper, who was from yeah. Worcestershire, just north of Gloucestershire. You know, how small a world it yeah. is. And there's me from Chippenham and, you know, Swindon area. And you're not many miles away from where you lived. And uh, it was really great. And it was lovely that um, we connected. I, I think it was really important, yeah. really important. You know, you reached out to me. Um, listen, I want to thank you so much for giving me your life story. 
And also tell me about your family's life story. I mean, that, that was the thing that was like, <laughs> I would just got to ask so many questions about it. And filled <laughs> us in on that. So um, good for you. And and I'm going to wish you the best of luck in the fundraising. Which I'm, and you're going to get to your goal. There's no doubt about it. I can tell you that now. <laughs> Thank and I'm you. And I'm going to say, that, you know, I'm going to wish you the best for the future. And for you, Ryan, and your, your daughter. And I hope things turn out the way that you want them to turn out. And again, I'm sure it will. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you. It was um, it was a pleasure to talk to you. Good. Okay. I really enjoyed it. You take care. Thanks. You've been listening to On Another Track with me, David Wilson. My guest this week was Vicky Hudson Craig, an amazing lady who's not frightened to tackle the biggest challenge of her life head on. Remember, there are more conversations coming up in this series. Just look out for On Another Track with me, David Wilson, on your local podcast platform and subscribe. This has been a BritCam production for Urban Aspect Incorporated. Keeping us safe on the roads of North America.